0: What's happening, Luther? I'm sorry about the door, man. Did that hurt? It looked real painful when you slammed into it. Luther, I'm talking to you. Luther! Luther! Hammond! Drop that goddamn gun! Hey, man, that's a dangerous game you're playing, man. Don't point that gun at me, all right? Don't point your goddamn gun at me, all
1: right? Hand me that gun or you're dead. Welcome to The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong. Be sure to check out The Contrarians on iTunes, where you can rate, review, and subscribe. We're also on SoundCloud, and don't forget about our main website, wearethecontrarians.com. Be sure to keep up with the pretentious ramblings of Alex and Julio on Twitter, at JamesAlexMattis, and at Ovnio. That's O V N I O. Time for the podcast.
2: So I, so I, so you
1: will this is hello and welcome back to the contrarians where we're right and you're wrong my name is alex i am joined as
2: always by my co-host julio julio how are you doing this evening i i am great uh it, it has been a, a very interesting experiment watching uh a sequel first, and then watching the original, because it really, uh, I think it's made this terrible movie we just watched a lot more entertaining than it had any right to be. Yes. Um,
1: kind of a you know an exercise in hubris, so to speak. It kind of felt like we were watching a prequel, because the quality was so much lower than the original.
2: Yes. Uh, we... Like a George Lucas prequel. Exactly.
1: Uh, we're back here this week to visit 48 Hours. Much like with another 48 Hours, we are joined by a special guest, a friend, and... Uh, listener of the podcast, uh, Brandon Curtis. Curtis, how you doing this evening? I'm doing well. Tremendous, tremendous. So, the
2: Walter Hill connoisseur.
1: Yes, exactly. The resident Walter Hill expert, in fact. Yes. So we just are off the heels of uh, 48 hours. Uh, Julio, do you have some reviews to read us through?
2: Uh, yeah, I have, a, I have a couple of quotes. Uh, starting with Dave Kerr from the Chicago Reader, who says, all in all, a superior genre piece, if not the height of Hill's artistry. Followed by Brian McKay from eFilmCritic.com, who says, Before Nolte was in rehab and Murphy was making movies like Pluto Nash, who can say which fate is worse? The two got together for a pretty decent little buddy cop movie. Uh, Jeffrey M. Anderson from the San Francisco Examiner says, A streetwise, savage, hilarious film with an incredible debut by Eddie Murphy. Finally, Brad Leitman from Film Threat says, Not many people ever get to be the coolest man on the planet. But for a while in the early '80s, it was Eddie Murphy. And then Brandon Curtis has a, a a special review that he he was pretty impressed with. Set the table <clears throat> so we can unset it.
0: This is a this is a perennial quotee on the show, uh, Walter Shaw, who gave 48 Hours four stars and has this to say about it in the opening paragraph: a genuinely touchy, risky race comedy. Walter Hill's finest box office hour reveals itself to be his finest hour, period. There's a moment in 48 Hours where disheveled grizzly bear of a cop, Jack, Nick Nolte typecasts apologize to the convict in his charge, Reggie, Eddie Murphy for calling him the N-word, and a watermelon, to which a smiling Reggie responds that, you know, there's not always an explanation or an excuse for things sometimes. And it's in that moment that, the, that defines the film defines it as a prototype for the modern buddy comedy, but moreover defines this picture and this man Murphy, then finishing up his second year on SNL, as the most important African-American actor since Sidney Poitier in a meteor more meaningful role than Poitier ever had. He is unapologetically a criminal, not the desperate hours Stanley-Kramerized, Christ-like criminal or the super-duper Green Mile magical Negro con, but a horny, profane, violent, venal criminal measuring the angles and deciding to help the fuzz because there's something attractive to him about becoming rich off the spoils of the heist that landed him in the pen in the first place. Reggie, in other words, is smart as hell as well as the product of a certain reality that would drive Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn absolutely insane. Better still, Jack is smart as hell too. And 15 years after, in the heat of the night here, finally, is a dynamic between a black guy and a white guy solving a case that rings with all the pain, injustice, and social weight necessary to tell the unsolvable calamity of race in our country.
2: Wow. Man, if Walter Chow was this impressed by this one, I can only imagine how he like his brain probably exploded when he watched another forty eight hours, which is a much better movie. He must have given like a hundred stars to the sequel.
1: Uh, it broke the rating meter.
2: Yes. I, I don't know. I am I'm, I'm confused. Like I read all, all the sprays and I'm like, are they maybe they watch another forty eight hours and got c- confused and that's where it's coming from? Because I, I did not get this at all. I was very disappointed.
1: Uh, Well, let's just hop right into it Uh, 48 Hours begins with uh, basically a a, uh, chain of convicts working on a railroad The most notable of which is Albert Gaines, played by James Remar Which I did confirm is Richard from Sex and the City, thank you
0: Um, And basically (laughs) Also uh, Raiden from Mortal Kombat Annihilation Oh my god
2: So he went on to have a, a career after this I mean, that's so he replaces the original Raiden, which uh Lee Bear. Right, yeah, that's man. It's so many connections. Uh, the, the all mid- two better movies than this one.
1: Uh, as these convicts are working on this railroad, a Native American pulls up in a pickup truck, I believe, uh, some sort of vehicle, and immediately, you know, racist slurs are thrown at him. And this is, gentleman is
2: <laughs> setting the tone for the rest of the movie. Exactly.
1: Uh, Billy Bear is the name of this character here, and he immediately gets into a scuffle with Gans. Uh, They scuffle down into the dirt and into the water. And basically during the scuffle, he slips them a pistol, which allows them to wipe out both of the officers that are monitoring the convicts working on this railroad track. Um, Setting the tone of what's to come. You know, these are obviously the bad guys. You know, as if we couldn't tell by the ominous tones and uh, Remar's beard. We're supposed to immediately, you know, have the table set and
2: basically spoon-fed, hey, these are the bad
1: guys, audience. It's also...
2: pretty weak sauce as far as like opening opening sequences go i don't know about you guys but i thought it was a pretty lame prison break uh maybe we've been spoiled by the show prison break who really <laughs> really delve into like how you get out of prison but this one was pretty lame i don't know what did you think i it didn't have the
0: nuanced build-up of the sequel mm-hmm. um in terms of that like there was there was no patience it gets right down to everything and that's kind of uh the calamity of modern action filmmaking.
2: Yeah, I guess you can see, obviously, Walter Hill learned from his mistakes. And, you know, he really took his time in the opening of the sequel, whereas this one, he was just like a teenager, just eager to get, you know, through the foreplay, just straight for the home run. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I can totally see that. We
1: cut to an alarm clock, an alarm clock on a watch, in fact. And we're reintroduced, I guess, having the pleasure of starting with another 48 hours this would have been our official introduction, per se, to Jack Cates, who's in bed with a shapely lady of the night. It appears
2: somebody who didn't make it to the sequel.
0: Yes. Oh, um, well, that's because he—that's because he kept pissing her off. <laughs> you, you—I mean, you know, not—you know—spoiler alert. But we see the state that he leaves his relationship in,
1: and not that this movie loves women to begin with, but at least she gets the dignity of turning him down in the end. She gets to tell him to fuck off. Yes. Um. But you know he kind of has a caddy back and forth with this woman, and you kind of get the the sense, you know, kind of spoon fed as the audience of what kind of cop Jack Cates is. He doesn't wear a uniform. He doesn't, you know, comb his hair. He smokes cigarettes. He he's gonna live by his own rules, type of thing.
2: It's uh, it, I think it's telling that uh, our hero, uh, you know, yeah, we're already seeing the convicts like kill a couple of people, more than a couple of people in the in their escape, and yet nothing is scarier than seeing Nick Nolte. Strap on a gun after those, <laughs> those like couple minutes of her his introduction he's already drinking, right? He's like pouring some alcohol on his yeah. coffee, and, and then he he grabs his gun, and you're like, oh my god, this is the hero, <laughs> and and the movie doesn't seem they seem to be okay with that. You know, I I'm really
0: glad that when we meet him, it's at her place because I'd hate to see the shambles that he lives in <laughs> because you kind of get the misconception that he he might be kind of a jerk. But he's he's a little neat, but I'm pretty sure that's her place doing doing all the talking as far as that goes. His
1: place would just be disheveled and discarded Chinese carry-out boxes and pizza boxes. Oh, to the high oh God, place. let's
0: not forget about the f- bottles of vodka. Yeah. That would that would probably kill a man.
2: <laughs> his, his KKK hood hanging <laughs> from his bedroom door. Uh, So
1: we cut to our two bad guys, Billy Bear and Gans, and there is a dead man on a park bench next to them. We later find out this is a gentleman by the name of Henry Wong. Uh, We don't quite know he's dead at first until we get a close-up, but it's the scene of them ordering prostitutes over the phone and saying, you know, we're going to be at this hotel this time, have these prostitutes come over for G.P. Polson, and we'll take him at that time. Um, We then see we're introduced to Luther, um, one of our secondary characters, These guys are all going to be tied together in the end, but uh, Gans pulls him into a car, puts a gun to his head, and he says he wants his money type thing. He's Like, you know, um, you have it. I want it. You know, it's obvious we're going to find out later exactly what's going on. It becomes tedious at this point.
2: Yeah, and I can't imagine how much more tedious it must be for somebody who's watching this for the first time. Because at least we knew exactly what was the deal with the money because we've seen the sequel, so we know that that money's still in play. <laughs> Eighty years later, <laughs> in another forty-eight hours, uh, but but for somebody that's just watching the movie from the get-go, they're like, "What the hell's going on? Do you know what's what, what's happening? It's not it's not entirely clear why we should care that much about." This guy who uh, who's kind of being a jerk to his girlfriend, and then he gets pulled into this car, yeah. and there's this whole thing. And then and then the bad guys take the girlfriend hostage.
1: Well, don't get me wrong. We're going to be asking why should we care about Luther for the rest of the film.
2: Yes. But for this point in time, um,
1: he's discarded, but they do take his girlfriend hostage. Um, they go back to their hotel, at which point Kate uh, is there on a hunch, but uh, two of the local detectives show up. Uh, one of which is Jay Pritchett's brother,
2: Jonathan Banks from Breaking Bad fame. Okay, looking like a uh, uh, Woods. Oh, dude, James he, Woods, looking like James Woods. He looks,
0: he looks baby faced, man. His hair is dark. <laughs> he's he's got a Caesar style haircut going on, like a uh, circa 1995 George Clooney.
2: <laughs> it, not quite the badass that that he, he grew to be in later years. But definitely, uh, happy when you told me, I was like, you know who that is? I really thought that was James Woods, like (laughs) young James Woods. He's he's pretty, you know.
0: You say that he's not quite the badass, but you're underselling the fact that he is the prototypically noble cop. Well, I
2: mean, I guess, you know, he is a badass, kind of in the sense that he's not the first cop to get killed in the you know in the in the sequence that follows oh, dude.
0: But. and he, dude he's walking around with a with a fatal bullet wound, like and, yeah, know. but
2: is that is that him being a badass or is that Walter Hill forgetting that the character had gotten shot <laughs> a minute ago because that almost seemed like you know i I saw him get shot twice in that gunfight, and then later he's like he seems like he's doing okay um Yeah, Yeah, it
1: basically just leads to more cops dead because they just go up to interrogate right away as they tell uh, Cates to just wait at the desk. And uh, Gans and Billy Bear are a bit smarter, and they grab their women and uh, Luther's girlfriend and take them hostage. They blast both these cops away, these detectives. They go to the bottom, have a shootout with Cates, and Cates just gives no fucks. He's just firing wildly at hostages. Anything that moves, basically.
2: I mean, to us, that's not a surprise because we've seen him be... Just as reckless. Oh, oh, don't forget, though,
0: as bad guys, they're conscientious objectors because the first thing they do is they say, Mr. Cates, you need to surrender your weapon. (laughs) (laughs) You're a fucking lunatic, sir.
1: (laughs) And eventually he does uh, in lieu of the life of Jay Pritchett's brother. But, of course, they're bad guys, so they still waste them before they leave.
2: Yes, which is just a pet peeve of mine, which, you know, countless movies. And I, I read somewhere once that it's just like it's actually part of like the policeman code that I might, you know, we'll get corrected if there's uh, any listeners that are, like, policemen or, or know about this. But, you know, I think that you never surrender your weapon to a criminal because there's no guarantee of anything, right? We're Which just, is exactly what happened in like this case.
0: You can't negotiate with him. Right, exactly.
2: How exactly did, did did he improve the situation by handing over his gun? He didn't. And instead he got his friend killed. Uh, and what it's worth, like... It's kind of funny because he spends the rest, the rest of the movie, like worried about how many gu- people are getting killed by his gun, which is kind of nonsense because obviously it's not like he's gonna get blamed for it. You know, everybody knows after that that his gun is lost, so it's not like anything is gonna get traced back to him. So I, I don't understand, you know, the the whole. Uh, obsession i understand that as a cop it's kind of like a matter of pride you don't lose your gun obviously i mean (laughs) this is common sense but the fact that they turned this whole like oh his gun is gone and now this is like there's a big deal that it's his gun it it doesn't matter right i mean as long as the bad guys have a gun it it, who who doesn't matter
1: point plot in the second movie far more interesting to where
2: the bad guy's gun can't be found Ah, well, see, that's, once again, Walter Hill building on his failings from the first movie. he learned from his mistakes.
1: So, it basically comes to light that these are local criminals, they were in a local gang that had, you know, convened several robberies. Um, Cates is on the case for this, he, he learns more about Gans and the gang that he was involved in, and he learns that one of the big players in it was a gentleman by the name of uh, Reggie Hammond, who is still in the pen, he served two and a half years of a three year sentence for uh, a robbery. He goes to jail to, you know, kind of confront him and see if he's of any help We get a callback to the sequel. So I guess the sequel is a callback, but uh, Reggie, Eddie Murphy, is singing Roxanne by The Police in his cell. And it's pretty fantastic, you know. Um, So far it's just been kind of sitting on our hands waiting for something to happen and to have a a moment of comedic relief is basically the, the breath of fresh air thus far.
2: It, it was it was good but at the same time it kind of it was soured by the fact that it suddenly it changed my appreciation of the sequel in the sense that now that Roxanne scene in the sequel it feels like such a cheap throwback to the to the original you know what I mean like it, it just like it ruined the Roxanne uh, scene from the sequel but having having seen them both in reverse
0: order they they go bigger with the karaoke moment in the sequel true.
2: They do, but in the sense of, like, now I know that, oh, well, they're just milking the joke from the original movie so badly. So, something that I really liked from the sequel, now it's just kind of like, eh, it, it wasn't that great. So, even, even when the original does something good, it just ruins something later for me. It just, it can't win. So,
1: Cates basically explains the situation to Hammond. Uh, he tells Reggie, you know, this is what's going on. I need your help. I know where this is. And Reggie, you know. It's drawn out way too long, but in the end, Reggie's like, okay, I'll help you.
2: Yeah, they really they take their time setting everything up. But we're like, we saw the poster. Yeah. These two are going to work together. So don't try to build any suspense. It's like, like a 10-minute interlude
1: of nonsense of like, we know you're going to side with them. Just get it over with already.
2: Right. I mean, they go as far as like, Noel, they goes like, well, no. And he walks away, <laughs> and then he comes back. <laughs> like, the, the next scene is just him coming back for Eddie Murphy. So what was the point of that? And
1: in the next scene, he tells them... I don't want to hear any of your jive, and then he calls him a watermelon. So we're off to a rough start here between these
2: two. Here's what made it the worst, like the most uncomfortable for me to watch. It's just that because we've seen the sequel, we know that he doesn't change. This is not the story of a racist asshole that finally becomes a better person. You know, through his experience in the movie, I've I've seen the sequel. I know that when another forty eight hours starts, he is the exact same person, if not worse. It's not like
1: the story arc that the dad from Grounded for Life has in The Patriot, where he becomes aware of his wrongdoings of racism. It's yeah, he just remains the same. Wait, are you telling me that
0: Donald Logue is in The
1: Patriot? Is that the red, the ginger dude yes. from uh,
2: Ghost Rider, the original, the original, the first oh, Ghost Rider? Okay,
0: well, uh, so if we're talking Donald Logue this is a time for me to tell all of our faithful listeners that they must watch uh, Terriers on Netflix. It is the greatest crime of the 20th century in regards to premature cancellation.
1: Well, he is in The Patriot, and he's very mean to one of the um, black soldiers on the north side. And then right before the final battle scene, he realizes that all men are created equal. He tells (laughs) him. I'm honored to be fighting next to you. That, and the guy turns to him like, "What?" and he goes, "Honored."
2: But <laughs> then in the sequel, Another Patriot, you, <laughs> you, you find out that no. <laughs> it's he's still it's the ruse. same. Yeah, he's still
0: the same guy.
1: <laughs> so, uh so Reggie says, "You know, we got to track down Luther. Luther is basically the middleman." Um they go to Luther's apartment, and you know, Luther at this point in the film was kind of painted as Almost like a guy, a deer caught in headlights, like didn't know what was going on. And with no explanation, he just turns into like pretty much like a crack addict. That he, <laughs> he, he finds is. his balls at some point. Yeah, he's like, that's,
0: uh, <laughs> that's that's pretty standard op for uh, for David Patrick Kelly or Michael Patrick Kelly. I don't know, Google it. The actor? Yeah, no. he's he's a perennial uh, Walter Hill regular, so it's a shame I can't remember his name. But uh, he's the guy that uh, Stallone drops from his ankles in... Uh, Commando, and he's like, "I lied," but yeah, he's he's always the uh, ner- nervous Nelly, so to speak. Um, and yeah, so he basically just snaps, he shoots at
1: Um, Nick Nolte, you know, he's trying to get away. Where Reggie cuts him off, opens a car door, lays him out. They take him in to arrest him, you know. And Reggie knows the score. He knows this is just like uh, one of the busybodies of the operation, and that what they need to really get is closer to the heart. Which is uh, Billy Bear, which leads to a scene that Trump supporters would absolutely despise, in that uh, Reggie goes into a country bar and basically takes over the whole thing.
2: Yeah, it's wrong on so many levels. Uh, it, it, I I understand. I mean, I, I would like to think that Walter Hill had good intentions here, where he's trying to play like the reverse card. It's like, okay, well, let's let's empower this black man uh, in in middle of this uh, gathering of rednecks. But here's the thing, like, they're still, I mean, they may be racist and they may be Trump supporters, let's say, but they're not breaking any laws. It's like Eddie Murphy gets drunk with power because Nolte gives him his badge and tells him, okay, let's see if you can get any information from them. They make a bet, basically. If, yeah. if, if Murphy is successful, then Nolte is going to let him, like, have half an hour to go and get laid. And... uh if, if as you do right, if if Murphy is not successful, then he has to spill the beans because there's something that he's keeping from Nolte, and then he, so he goes into this this bar and he just terrorizes the rednecks. You know, there's the there are these men who. You know, they may be ignorant or whatever, but they're not breaking the law. They're just drinking at this place. He goes they're in. containing
1: their hate and misogyny or, in one place.
2: Right. What keeps us from just becoming animals, and that is following the laws. It, 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 Murphy just goes in and he starts shit but everywhere. He yeah, throws, it was, it's,
0: he, it's a cavalcade of destroyed property.
2: Right. And then he antagonizes them. I don't them. endorse. <laughs> he antagonizes them and then uses uh, whatever excuse they they you know as soon as they they flinch they they act like they may be uh angry at him then he he lashes out and and brutalizes them he is clearly in the wrong <laughs> <laughs> just because he's black and they're white that doesn't mean that that you know this is okay but the movie sets it up like this Triumphant moment for him and for race relations and whatever, you know. Even Nolte seems like, oh man, that's my kind of guy. Well, yeah, of course, because Nolte is an asshole. Yeah. So, you know, he he just gets a hard on just from seeing somebody, black or white, abusing other people. So, overall, it's just in very poor taste. uh Just as also when they first enter the bar, that's, I think, we're like 30 minutes of the movie, maybe. And I think that's the first time that you see Nick Nolte's character crack a smile. Like a true smile. We're like
1: halfway into the movie at this point. This movie really doesn't pick up until like the last 20 minutes.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is all like a very slow methodical investigation. Aces, this is not. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> uh, in, in more ways than one. But certainly the pacing is, is one of them. Uh, but yeah, it's telling that as if you didn't know already that Nick Nolte's character is just – it's trouble – the fact that he seems truly happy as soon as they step into this bar that's, you know, full of hateful, ignorant, racist people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that just gives you a, that just gives you another hint. That he just smiles. He, he wasn't this happy when He's he was home. with his girlfriend. Yeah, exactly. It's like, my people.
1: So basically the information they gather in this redneck bar is that if they want Billy Bear, they have to go see his girlfriend. So they go to his girlfriend's apartment. It leads to a standoff with uh, you know, the girlfriend pulling a gun on Nolte and Kate's pulling the gun on her. And not the last time in this movie that someone's not going to believe that Jack Cates is a police officer. Um, but yeah, this scene is kind of silly. It leads nowhere. It's an obvious red herring.
2: Well, what we learn later, though, is that... Uh, I mean, we'll get to this in like a couple of scenes. From what now, I mean but... by
1: it's an obvious red herring is it's obvious it's going to come back into play later in the movie.
2: Right, but it's also like... Uh, it's a dead end. I mean, they, yeah, they don't get anything from it. Uh, uh, but then later in the movie, Murphy reveals something that basically makes you realize that the entire movie up till then was just filler, mm-hmm. uh, which is kind of that's lame. <laughs> you know, that's, I, I can't believe they, they were now past the point where when he takes him when he takes Murphy out of jail, then the cop that's releasing him says like. Well, you need to bring him back in forty-eight hours, and then winks at the camera. <laughs> so now we're, I think, like at least twenty-four hours into it, right? Because mm-hmm. is the first night when they go and like bully these women, and uh,
1: I know sometimes it's hard to keeping the faith. <laughs>
2: <laughs> what I have to spend another forty-eight hours with you?
1: <laughs> yeah, it basically, it, yeah. This is like the midway point. It's the um the um the bridge, so to speak. You know, November Rain, you have to have that bridge that gets you there. Yes. It's like the first half of that song's bullshit, but then Slash comes out with his guitar and you know shit's going to get real. The filler here is basically a mediocre fight scene, but as you and I discussed during it, it lent itself to the inspiration for They Live.
2: So I guess it did something right. It, but,
1: it worked in the end.
2: Yeah, but uh, yeah, it's basically, like I said, yeah, we're halfway through the movie, so it's time for these two people to bond. It's it, intermission time. Yeah, intermission time, which in to provide the fake ending that we get uh, in 40 minutes or so, you need to have these people have some sort of connection. So yeah, they connect first by bullying these women. They break into their apartment and they scare them for no reason, they get no, no information, and then when they come out, they just, they go into this match of bullshit, like, okay, well, you know what, there's nothing else for us to do, let's fight.
1: Well, you know, it just speaks to how terrible a human being Cates is. He's so aggravated that he's just reduced to calling uh, Reggie the worst racial epithets in the world.
2: Yes. <laughs> it's it's almost like the movie was looking for an excuse to just allow Cates to go all out racist and... and it it plays both ways because at this point Eddie Murphy he's he's just as bad maybe not as bad but it's still pretty bad he these two are not they're not good people uh, Murphy is a criminal he, he's like sleazy they
1: belong to each other though
2: right it's it's kind of sad because when we watch the sequel I remember thinking of of oh well you know when we watch Forty Eight Hours we'll get to see the beginning of this really toxic relationship that you see in another 48 hours which was something i liked how they it explored uh in a very subtle way what it was like for the murphy character to be under the thumb of the nolte character the entire time and so you get to see it happen here but the way it happens is it's just it's just not subtle at all it's completely different from what you in another 48 hours here you just see the most blatant way for them to bond, because they're men, is to just get into a fist fight and and just call each other the worst possible things they can, and it's just so lame. And he goes on forever, yeah, without any kind of insight to the character. You already got it. You already know everything you're gonna know about these people. Whereas,
1: and they live that worked. And, that was the point.
2: Like, it, you know. in they live. There was that fight was making a statement exactly. about each character. It was like here, it's just like. Hey, they—they they have to—they're they're idiots, so they have to bond somehow. Let's just have him like punch each other to almost death.
1: Uh, much like you know, uh, a recent example of how to make this work is the 2014 classic Godzilla, in which uh, Brian Cranston and Godzilla—they have a very complex relationship where they have to—you know—Cranston dies trying to fight him. If they, if one of them had died in the scene, it maybe it would have been worth it. But you know,
2: it's... well, Nick Nolte's no Brian Cranston, and Eddie Murphy's no Godzilla, so there's, they, they, they had, hey. <laughs> they had no hope. <laughs> Roar.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, again, the real police show up to break up this fistfight that's been reported. And they don't believe that Nick Nolte's a cop. Of course not. <laughs> and he you know, he says, I'm too fucking tired to hold up my hands. My gun and badge is in the car. And they just treat him with the lack of respect that you would treat a cop that was in that kind of situation.
2: Well, not that I would, because I would be scared shitless of Nick Nolte. <laughs> I'm sorry,
1: uh, as you would treat a fellow cop.
2: Yeah. Right, yeah.
1: Nick Nolte, you know, whatever creed or color you are, Nick Nolte as a cop is a loose cannon. And, you know... Yeah, I wouldn't shoplift a video game around that guy.
2: (laughs) No, that's terrifying. He'll shoot you.
1: (laughs) So after they test each other's moxie, basically at this point, Reggie realizes he can trust him. And it's time to kind of lay it on him, so to speak. And he tells him, and like you said, the first half of the fucking movie has just been a lie. Because he tells him, he's like, all right, so we did this robbery. This deal went awry. I got the money. It's in the trunk of
2: my car. And then Nolte says what everybody's thinking. So you knew this this entire time. I almost got shot twice. I don't know
0: know if that makes the first half of the movie a lie. It's playing coy, which isn't necessarily playing fair, but it's not the same thing as a lie.
2: Right, but it makes it a waste of time because you could have had a much shorter movie. (laughs) It basically tells you that everything we did up to here really amounted to nothing. Yeah, And and it's not even... I mean, there were shootouts. There was, like, people were in danger. So how much... You know, if I was Eddie Murphy... Obviously, I would want to live. I wouldn't want to put myself in harm. In And he's been putting himself in harm's way. It,
1: it's not like the end of the village where it's like, oh, my
2: God. like you know, Everything, you have to, you know, rethink everything that's happened until day Now, this, this revelation is more like, really? Are you kidding me? So yeah. we spent an hour into this investigation when we really had the answer all along. Yeah.
1: So it's basically, you know, let's go find my car. Money's there. The criminals are going to be where my car is. So they go to the parking garage. They park across the street. Uh, you get kind of a fun back and forth between Kate's and Reggie. It uh, just leads to fucking Luther showing back up again because I guess he has a v- fucking expensive smack habit because he's just doing whatever
2: the fuck they send him to do. Uh, he picks up the car that has the money in it. He picks up the car that's been sitting there for three years. There is not a garage in the world that would keep a car <laughs> parked there for three years and charge the battery. Once per, a month. Once a month.
0: What the hell? I mean, we, we don't know that. We weren't adults in the 80s. We couldn't drive cars.
1: San Francisco in 1982 <laughs> must have been a great place to live. Dude,
2: I, are you I will... telling me if that ever happened, why wouldn't it still be happening now? That is great service. <laughs> He
1: used to put real meat in McDonald's hamburgers, so <laughs> uh, it was yeah. a much different it's
2: a, it's a show of the decline of the world, that, right. that there aren't any more garages now that will we keep your car during the recording of this of how far did, our country's
1: did anybody?
0: <laughs> does anybody get any indication from the villains, or from Reggie himself, who is much less of a villain, that Luther wasn't just like this rat fuck that sold them all down the river? Because he looks like he would be. And no, nobody ever seems to throw that on him.
1: He just seems like a recluse. Like, he's out for number one. But at this point, you know, um, the movie does a really bad job of reminding us of this because I just forgot it until now. They have his girlfriend, and that's why he's
2: doing it. Oh, yeah, yeah, thing. yeah. Because at some point, you know, every time you cut back to the bad guys and they, they have girls, I honestly thought that girl was just like another hooker. That they, yeah. It, it wasn't until the very end where I realized, oh, yeah, that is his girlfriend. Mm-hmm.
1: So he nabs the money, he takes off in the car, which basically leads to a chase, uh, and they chase him to the subway. And man, San Francisco's got a more crowded subway than New York City because there's just fucking people everywhere. And he waits in the middle of it, and finally Gans shows back up. And um, I actually read that James Remar, before his scenes, he wouldn't sleep for like two days just to make himself look extra crazy and shit. It really shows. Because he looks it works. like a fucking piece <laughs> of shit here, yeah. Well,
0: I mean, but again, it's all... Uh... The immaculately coiffed uh, facial hair is is counterintuitive to that whole approach. It
1: is. It's true because you know he's a crazy ass criminal, but he's got a perfect fucking beard this entire time. Looks like fucking Alan Rickman and Die dude, Hard. Dude,
0: he is he is a well dressed man. Like you know, there you can't take that away from him. He looks no matter like how crazy the,
2: he's supposed to be.
1: He looks like one of the dudes the vampires and the Lost Boys would have killed.
2: You know, it's like I, I think it just shows how. They were overthinking this villain because he's just a little too quirky. Yeah, he's like he—he's really tired, but he keeps himself neat. He hires hookers, but he likes to watch TV instead of you, you know. He, see, uh, he clearly has a fetish for blondes. Has him walk around. There's at least twice that we cut to him with some blonde hooker walking around topless while he's watching TV. And they it was a
1: prelude to George Clooney's character in Up in the Air.
2: Yes, that's exactly so this movie once again provides inspiration for much better movies down the line but but here
1: the you know, fruits of its labor are much sweeter than its labor
2: yeah i i truly believe that they got together when they were planning this movie and they were throwing ideas around and there were some interesting discussions and they really focused on some stuff and they were like how about the if the bad guy was like really this weird and we give him oh he could have like his beard it's almost it's always perfect no matter what happens and how about he calls hookers but he doesn't really fuck them he's just like he keeps them around and and, and they they focus on all the quirky stuff and they didn't really focus on like the interesting stuff like the thing that would really hook us cuz really even now we don't know enough about this guy to really hate him other than oh well you know he shoots people and he kidnaps people but yeah he doesn't make for a memorable villain he comes in, though, and he
1: goes to get his briefcase with his five hundred grand, And um, right before Kate steps up to put a stop to it, the um, uniformed officer in the subway says,
2: Drop that! Freeze! Once and, again, yeah. <laughs> not believing that Nick Nolte's a cop.
1: <laughs> yeah, and Nolte finally, you know, he chases him to the subway, and he has him cornered as uh, Reggie goes off to chase Luther. And right when Kate's is going to, you know, get the villains, the cops pull the guns on him, and he says, I'm a cop! They don't believe him because he looks like a drunk asshole.
2: <laughs> <laughs> He's just filthy at this point. Yes. It's funny because they had their big fight, uh, and, and Nolt is still looking like he got into a fight, but somehow Eddie Murphy looks fine. They both beat the shit out of each other, and they were both bleeding for a couple scenes, but then at some point Eddie Murphy cleaned up fine, and Nolt is still looks like like a homeless guy.
1: Black don't crack, man. Oh, there you go. So, Eddie does get his time away. He goes to a club, uh, you know, one of his familiar stomping grounds. We do get an amazing cameo by the Busboys, an awesome 80s rock band. Um, You know, that would be the highlight of this scene, though, because it basically leads to one of the most cliche comedy scenes that I think we've covered here on The Contrarians, in which Nick Nolte is going back and forth on phone lines between his girlfriend and talking to Reggie, and he's getting them confused constantly. So, his verbiage and... uh, Dialogue is a bit uh, off.
0: Yeah, he
2: calls uh, he calls his girlfriend a motherfucker. That's right. <laughs> it's, this is all extra, extra weird because we have the Iceman in the scene. Kehoe. Kehoe. He's, uh, those of us who have seen the sequel first, <laughs> we know that this guy proves to be the, the actual antagonist. I mean, at the time that this movie is taking place, he's already probably kind of doing some shady dealings yeah. uh, as a cop. So, but this, but this is good. This
1: is one of the better things because of the foreshadowing. He... He's so happy at Kate's misfortune here.
0: See, I, I disagree. Like, yeah, he's basically like, you could have a bad cop. You yeah. screw things up all the time. And he's just got his code. No way in the world you'll shoulder. catch me.
1: Yeah. He, 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 it, here you can see the wheels turning in his head. So this was one of the high points.
2: I disagree. I think that the only reason we enjoyed that is because we know, because we've seen the sequel, if we were watching you know in chronological order we wouldn't get anything out of this scene we'd be just like man they really like this extra that because he has like two (laughs) scenes in in this movie there it's not like they actually set things up enough to where at the end of this movie you're like but what about that shady cop i wonder if something will come out of that and then you know another 40 hours happens and and that's what i'm
1: saying that's what makes another 40 hours genius is because you don't see that shit coming
2: Right, another 48 Hours to Genius. But this one, no. They just had like this random cop there doing something. He's not even like... Uh... There's two major cops besides uh, Nick Nolte. Uh The guy that would grow to become the Iceman. And then his boss, the sergeant, who just likes to scream a lot. Captain Hayden. Captain Hayden likes to be really loud and yell really obvious things in his two or three scenes that he has. Yeah. Where he's like, I don't like seeing good cops killed or something. Yeah. It... It's, it's just that uh, there's not He's much in the way. On my last nerve. He is. Agitating my sciatica. It is weird. Get in your
0: batch. It is weird. He is still kind of like a subversion of the gruff lieutenant that these kind of cops normally have because he doesn't want to suspend him outright. He's like, do your job really good or. You know, we're gonna have your ass.
2: This is the and, last time.
0: It's, <laughs> and it's it's kind of cool. Boy. It's kind of cool. It's but you know, it's better. It's better than being like gun badge now. Like I, you know, so
2: well. Well, this movie's not even that bad. I mean, yeah. they, they, they had to at least do the, the next thing, which is like, all right, we'll take away that, but he can still be but, you know, really angry. But all then the time. again,
0: their lieutenant is a direct sort of precursor. To the lieutenant of Danny Glover and Mel Gibson in uh, in Lethal Weapon.
1: And also to Abed on Community. The,
0: these dudes think that he is like, you know, their, their lieutenant thinks they are straight fuck-ups. But, uh, but for whatever reason, he doesn't suspend them. In fact, he, like, promotes them way beyond their means in uh, the fourth one.
1: So Reggie's getting down to this club. Gates goes down there to meet him. Um, bus boys continue to play good stuff reggie meets a girl he's gonna take her you know to this hotel across the street because that was part of their deal you know tell me what's going on you can get your rocks off um he goes to take this girl to the hotel luther comes out of the hotel and you know reggie's like oh shit, we gotta find our man so they make a move Uh,
2: oh but before this when when nolte gets there for the first time or you know when he first gets there they uh, uh that's where they bond that's where they have that scene Oh, well, it's either there. They, there's two scenes where they really have like a bonding moment that doesn't involve like punching each other. Uh, you know, because he gets there and he realizes that uh, Murphy didn't have to call him; mm-hmm. he could have just taken off. Uh, and then he says, "Thanks for calling me." And then they have a little heart to heart. And uh, if you've watched the sequel, then that's what your heart breaks because you're like this connection that they're establishing here of kind of mutual mutual respect. Yeah. It doesn't last, no. <laughs> and, uh, but that see to me this was the highlight of the movie. That's the one moment where it felt like they were like there was true honesty, and at the, and it was kind of like a, a, a bittersweet moment for me because I know that it's it doesn't really whatever conviction they managed to infuse into this scene didn't last yeah. for the sequel. Uh, but they have that moment where where Nolte just says, "You're not so bad." For a black guy.
1: <laughs> Luther's in the hotel, takes off, they make a move on him. He hops on a bus that's being dri- driven by Billy Bear. Um, and, you know, the, he inches closer to Gans as Gans has his girlfriend. And he's like, here's the money. Is she okay? And Gans, of course, fucking shoots him.
2: He just kills him in cold blood. Which he should have known better by now. Oh, exactly. They're associates. It's fucking <laughs> days. <laughs> But they know each other from way back, so why would you trust them? Why wouldn't you? Why didn't he come armed? There is, there's. I mean, he deserved to to get killed. There's no other way around it.
1: And then the bus driven by Billy Bear, um, you know, eventually, uh, Kate's catches up to him, but they're run off the road. They crash into a a local uh, car dealership. It looks like, and it leads itself to. Uh, Captain Hayden in his Oscar clip Uh, (laughs) Frank McRae who plays Captain Hayden Just goes off On Cates and Reggie And um, I'm really hoping I can find a good audio clip Of it to include in this podcast Because it's it's, it's pretty intense It's one of the more curse filled Racial epithet laden diatribes That we've seen here on The Contrarians
2: Yeah and it's almost like Well it's okay because this is a black guy doing it So (laughs) it's okay And he actually draws attention to it at one point (laughs) That's right Acid. <laughs> yeah, it's. It, I guess this is, you know, way before Quentin Tarantino was like, "Oh, that's okay," because I'm having some little Jackson say it. But, <laughs> but it, it's still kind of off-putting uh, and and very. Uh, it's still offensive, and I'm yeah. not even, you know, I'm Hispanic. I shouldn't, but it still made me really uncomfortable to just see this guy who is also in a position of power. Because you cannot forget that these guys are cops. And just their attitude—they're just like they're just like big bullies that also happen to be really racist and mm-hmm. just kind of like uh, uh, drunk with power. Yeah. So it's—I I fear for Eddie Murphy's life automatically, and I don't think I'm supposed to because by this point you're supposed to believe that there's some connection between him and and uh, Nick Nolte's character. But no, it still just feels really icky. The entire thing. So after this,
1: we get um, Hammond and Kate's having basically a moment of re- reflection when they realize what we realized earlier in the movie is that maybe Billy's girlfriend's place wasn't a red herring. <laughs> so they go back there to see, you know, maybe they went back. They stake it out, and indeed, you know, the the crooks are definitely there. Um, Billy Bear kind of goes out like a badass. <laughs> Because Reggie pulls a gun on him, he pulls a knife out and just marches forward and gets shot to shit.
2: He laughs first. He pulls the gun, the, his knife, and he starts laughing. Uh, he kind of sees through, or he thinks he's seeing through uh, uh, Eddie Murphy's bravado, because he's like his head is shaking as he's pointing a gun at him. But then, uh, yeah, he shoots anyway. He shoots a couple times. He tells him, he's like,
1: "Don't do it, Billy," and he does, and he yeah, he gets shot.
2: It's really sad that, you know, there's these two minorities shooting each other while Whitey is still, like, having a good time in the other room. Gans escapes. Um,
1: He escapes into the streets. Both Reggie and Cates go after him, and uh, he's able to take down Reggie. He basically captures him, and he puts him, you know, at gunpoint. Um, And Cates, Nick Nolte, as we saw earlier in the movie, does not give a fuck. (laughs) So He just walks up and opens fire on him and Eddie's like are you
2: fucking crazy (laughs) which once again it just it's a moment that maybe if we hadn't watched uh, Die Hard 4 or even if we haven't watched another 48 hours would have been a little more surprising but really honestly I had to like double check and ask you it's like isn't this how the last movie ended (laughs) because it's, it's almost the same thing I mean there is variations he doesn't actually shoot Eddie Murphy in this one but it's like, come on, Walter Hill! You need to come up with new endings at this point. How did Last Man Standing end with Bruce Willis like shooting somebody that's being held hostage? I mean, that's uh, it. It was a bummer that that's the climax of the movie, and it was something that felt like I've seen like ten times already. Mm-hmm. I, I know it's a movie from the eighties, and probably there's movies that are aping it down the line, but it, it, in the end, it's just it's so easily replicable that you know it, it just didn't work for me. But then
1: Gans gets up, because he's not dead yet, and he just runs at Cates. I don't know what his game plan was, but you guessed that he gets gunned down in the middle of the alley. And, you know, that's kind of that. That wraps it up. Um, at this point, Reggie's just kind of wondering what his fate leaves.
2: Well, it's worth pointing out that, that Nolte never shoots somebody just once. He, like, unloads through the entire movie. He must have shot, like, it's like it's 48 hours and, like, 148 bullets. Yeah. <laughs> In 248 racial slurs,
1: that's no lie. So Reggie, you know, kind of wonders what's going to become of his situation. Uh, Kate's tells him the money's his. He takes the briefcase and he puts it in the trunk of his car, and he says it'll be waiting for you in six months when you get out. Um, no,
2: gonna, it won't.
1: <laughs> yeah, but we're gonna need another 48 hours.
2: Yeah, even that kind of bullshit happy ending rings hollow because if you've seen the sequel. Then you know that that Nolte. I mean, I guess he kind of mentions it here, but he uses part of the money for to buy a new car. Mm-hmm. But in another forty hours, he tells Reggie that he took a loan from from the money to to buy a new Cadillac or whatever it is he's driving. And uh, so even that, it, it's almost like again, I I just begrudge this movie at times because it ruins what, some of the things I liked about the sequel. Yeah, uh, it's just again a no win situation. And then
1: they share a laugh in the car and he says, hey, 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 hey. and basically they drive off into the sunrise together because it's the morning time. So, um, yeah, it, it ends. It, it ends. <laughs> We're left kind of like, that's it. <laughs>
2: that's it. I mean, he is going back to jail, right? Exactly. <laughs> it's not a happy ending but the movie tries to sell you like it's a happy ending.
1: Because with all the shit that Cates is of capable of getting away with with the San Francisco Police Department, you'd think he'd be able to pardon somebody.
2: Right. I mean, he was very useful in the the capture of this madman. I think the only person that shoots more people than Nick Nolte in this movie is the bad guy. Yeah. So he was a real threat, and, and Eddie Murphy helped put him away. So, yeah, I mean, it was only six months that he had left. He could have just, like, let him go, but... 'Cause at some times Nick Noti will play by the rules. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think we're ready for real talk.
1: I think we are ready for real talk. What's your
0: fucking problem? Yeah, I'm on for all.
1: That's why you're running away?
0: Yeah. Put your country ass down, Alright,
1: listen up. I don't like white people. I hate rednecks. You people are rednecks. It means I'm enjoying this shit. Oh, you loaded here. Who the fuck did you get this? Tax refund. It's bullshit. It's too fucking stupid to have a job. You don't like that? You don't like that shit? You hate that shit, right? What the hell kind of cop
2: are you? You know what I am? I'm your worst fucking nightmare. I'm a nigga with a badge. That means I got the mission to kick your fucking ass whenever I feel like it. All right, listen
1: up, man. One of them's underage, another one attacked a police officer, and I still ain't found
2: what I'm looking for yet. Well, look, I think you're on your way to being out of business, all right? Let's see what we can fuck with next.
1: Hey, man, all right, okay, 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 now listen. Now, the Indian hangs out with a chick who lives up the block. Just head up the alley across the street where Chinatown starts. She lives on top of the jewelry store. I didn't ask you shit about this girl, man. Come on, give me a break, will you? You're gonna have to settle for her place because it's all I know. I'm telling you, I'm giving you all I know! Well, look, Hoss. You start running a respectable business, and I won't have to come in here and hassle you every night. You know what I mean?
0: I want the rest of you cowboys to
1: know something. There's a new sheriff in town. Okay, real talk. So, 48 Hours was released on December 8th, 1982. It was a Christmas movie-ish. Uh, directed by Walter Hill, obviously. Budget of $12 million. Box office of $78.9 million. It was originally written in the 70s for Clint Eastwood and Richard Pryor.
2: Holy cow. And That's
1: I awesome. Am I will forever be <laughs> angered that we didn't get that film.
2: Yes, at the same time, I mean, it's like at least Nick Nolte has this.
1: Oh yeah, absolutely. It's uh, I just want Clint Eastwood. Hey, your <laughs> watermelon. But you know, it's um, yeah, it was written in the seventies for them, and then basically,
0: and then Richard went, Pryor would
2: be all like, motherfucker. Suck my dick. <laughs> think decades later, Iswood would get his racist rocks off exactly. with Gran Torino. Well, yeah, from what I found, they tried like, it with
1: that, didn't work, and then just kind of was auctioned off, and eventually picked up for this. Um, Paramount at the time thought it was way too violent. They said when they, like they were really worried about it being released and everything.
2: They were okay with the racism. Yeah, <laughs> it but was the just violence. the violence was too much.
0: No, I mean, I think. Uh, it, you know, you need a few years to realize that uh, <clears throat> that it's pretty par for the course. Like, uh, you know, in a few years, you get uh, Re- Year of the Dragon with Mickey Rourke and John Lone, and that's uh, that's pretty standard issue uh, racism. You know, uh, gruff, unlikable white cop does good by people. Um, it's still
1: pretty startling to think that. This was, like, okay, <laughs> like, <laughs> less than 40 years ago. But uh, so we'll get into what we really think about it, but not everyone was a fan. This is a widely regarded classic, but not everyone was a fan.
2: Right? Uh, no, I I, I got three quotes for you, uh, starting with Brian Costello from Common Sense Media, saying, violence, profanity, racial epithets in the dated 80s movie. Uh, so, I mean, clearly you can see what upset him about it. <laughs> Uh, Richard Schickel from Time Magazine says neither jokes nor fast, flashy action can completely distract audiences from the failure to establish an authentic, rather than a purely conventional, connection between Nolte and Murphy. Uh, which I mean, I get, I don't agree. I actually, I bought the relationship. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, and finally, in an almost uh, sweet quote, Alexander from Juicy Cerebellum says. This film never worked for me. That's all. <laughs> well, it does stand- I did not buy that a white man and a black man could be friends. <laughs> well,
1: it does stand at a 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. And um, pretty difficult, the first portion, to be negative about it. It's really good. Uh, Julio and I had never seen either of these, and we both agreed at the end of this that it made the second one that much worse because the first one was so good.
2: Yes, it, it definitely having seen the second one first highlights even more how good the first one is uh but it's also i don't know i mean i'm glad we did it this way yeah it just it made me even angrier at the second one than i was before because it really it makes it even more apparent how just lazy some of the choices were in the previous section when we were talking about just know, said, man is
1: literally an extra <laughs>
2: yes, is a there's a name for like uh, the extra that has lines. Uh, I don't remember what you call it, but uh, you know, he's just like he has two scenes, and the first scene he barely talks, and the second one he's just there to play off Nick Nolte. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also the the references, the throwbacks, you know, the callbacks to to jokes and scenes that worked in this movie. The fact that they just pulled that out for another forty eight hours, it just. It's like you were not happy. You were not content with just making a bad movie, but you had to make like a, a lazy bad movie that just pulls off from you know whatever worked in the first one.
1: And especially the fact that uh, Reggie doesn't even get his reward in the end. Right, the second it, one just it blows it up literally.
2: It takes a, a perfectly good ending uh, from Forty Eight Hours and just contrives to make it th- so that they can be antagonistic toward each other in the in the sequel. Which is a shame because, really, I thought that this one, the the very last few minutes of this one, set up a much better sequel than we got. Uh, because Reggie says something like, if I wanted to keep being a thief, you wouldn't be able to catch me or something. Which, to me, I'm like, well, that is the perfect sequel. He gets... Out of jail, and then he goes back to life of crime. Well, and the ending's
1: perfect too because he says that while he's lighting his cigarette. and Nick Nolte says, "Give me back my lighter." Right. That's a perfect end.
2: Yeah, I would have if another forty-eight hours was like Nick Nolte oh. has forty-eight hours to catch Eddie Murphy. Now you're talking. Yeah.
0: You could you could argue that uh, that Reggie doesn't want to be that guy, at least in the context of uh, of Kate's, because he purposely lets himself get caught. Because when he's like, oh, you saw that, you don't miss anything, it's like, you're not exactly being discreet about anything. Something something about this guy, whatever reason insanity it may defy, you, you don't want to be this complete fucking scumbag in his presence.
1: Another 48 Hours, though, basically just became a caricature of Reggie Hammond. Of Jack Cates and of another or of Forty Eight Hours, it was basically just a parody of the original film.
2: Which is crazy because how long did it take to come out? Eight I mean, years. Eight, yeah, eight years, years, right? Yeah, and that that it took them eight years to just come up with like a half baked
1: sequel. And they reversed billing, and the first one Nick Nolte got the top billing, and the second one Eddie Murphy got the top billing.
2: Oh, that that's gotta hurt.
1: And Eddie Murphy's paycheck like skyrocketed. He made, I remember, $7 million for the second one. For the oh, dude,
0: one. but they, they don't skimp on the comedy in the second one. So you you could argue that whatever purpose Eddie Murphy serves for the second one, which would obviously be his comic relief, they amped that up. So he they delivers because, dude, we, you know, we laughed pretty fucking hard. Oh, yeah, when yeah absolutely. We watched but, the second one. But Eddie Murphy doesn't have the swagger that he does here.
1: Watching this, I literally turned to you all at one point. And I was like, God, can you imagine what Eddie Murphy could have been? And it's not to say Eddie Murphy doesn't sleep. Oh,
0: and that that was his first scene, so you know, you know that he came, you know, yeah. willing to do something serious to establish his bona fides. He wasn't he wasn't like a
2: joke machine.
0: No, we but... didn't we didn't have a good solid Eddie Murphy laugh. Yeah. until like 2 thirds of the way through the movie.
2: I mean, we did laugh at the Roxanne thing from the beginning, yeah. but Yeah, that's...
0: and then after that it's like it you know it dialed down until like somewhere towards the end
1: and you know it's not to say that Eddie Murphy eats pork and beans or you know couch surfs he lives comfortably
2: well but yeah what i, I mean, mean it's like
1: he could have been one of the most <laughs> celebrated actors of all time
2: like we say constantly in this podcast we would trade lives with him yeah <laughs> any second but can you
1: imagine what eddie murphy could have been
2: well yeah it's more like it it's just like there's this puzzling direction that his career took on you know and uh i know i read somewhere that like a lot of actors at some point he was just like well he wanted to make movies that his kids would watch would led to just a string of like sure. pg <laughs> pg pg <PG-13> 13 <laughs> movies that happened to not be good um a lot of people like bowfinger Bowfinger is fine, actually. I like Bowfinger a lot, but it's it's pretty reviled, right? Isn't it like uh, uh, considered one of his bad movies? Uh, I
0: don't know. Let's uh, let's hit the Rotten Tomatoes. Yeah,
2: if you want to pull it up. But I I actually I like Bowfinger. I I do
0: too. I saw it. In fact, I saw it on my birthday in
2: in the theater. I I didn't I I think I read it way after the fact uh, and I was surprised by how much I liked it considering how much it, kind of like with like Death to Smoochie, which yeah. everybody hates Death to Smoochie, and I watched it and I was like oh this is actually pretty funny
1: but I say all that just basically in context of he's so good at this Eddie Murphy that is
2: well yeah it, it's 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 a hell of a, of a is this a debut because that one of the mm-hmm. the reviews said that that was a debut that's amazing that, you know he comes in he and, came and, in like. like Fairly
1: far into the principal photography portion because he was still on SNL wrapping up a season of that. So.
2: I think you are going to say because Richard Pryor had been shooting up today and then he got fired. Okay, uh, what movie am I supposed to be looking up again? Bowfinger. Bowfinger. Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh, but yeah, I, I I like him a lot. I mean, I like Nolte a lot too. It, this is obviously much more subtle work than he does in another 48 hours. Yeah. His His character is still... A trouble person, a trouble cop, kind of an asshole, but not in the way like the you know cranked up to eleven that he's in another forty eight hours.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Guys, Bowfinger on the tomato meter is actually at eighty one percent. Really? Wow. It's wow. it's not reviled, which is good because I've I've always enjoyed it. I'm glad that people have it. You know, it. Let's be let's be honest. Maybe maybe I'm about to say something really insane, but we could very easily call Bowfinger. The late '90s, *Tropic Thunder*.
2: That's it's a bold statement, with, but uh, ex- I, I don't you wanna, know, I don't want to argue against it because it could be. I mean, perhaps I, I with that exception
0: much. to some of the self awareness about the way that people play disabilities and race and stuff. But you know, in terms of being like a whip smart comedy about show business, there might be some traction there.
2: Fair enough. I think it warrants rewatching. Now that yeah. you've made that statement, I I really because I've only seen it once. And again, I this way before I even knew about Rotten Tomatoes. Uh, so all I knew was just like what word of mouth had given me. And to me, it was oh, it's another bomb. Uh, it's like Steve Martin and and Eddie Murphy being terrible. And yeah,
1: I don't remember making a killing at the box office. But again, all of this conversation is to just say that Eddie Murphy literally had. The world in the palm of his hand at one point, and this was a big part of that. You know, he had. This, this was this okay. was
0: the start of it because this is eighty two. Yeah, um, it's before Beverly Hills Cop, which, incidentally, fun fact that was that movie was number one for fourteen weeks in a row. It was the dead at the box office of the time.
2: <laughs> I was gonna say the Forrest Gump was. Well, I was but... gonna probably.
0: I was. I think I might have actually gone with Titanic. Yeah, so, yeah how Titanic was like. 30-something, right? Yeah, it's something something insane. Leo just won an Oscar. I I,
2: I I heard. Um, I heard and I saw, I saw the memes.
1: <laughs> but, you know, Eddie, it, it was kind of funny, we were talking about this before we so started recording, has kind of a similar trajectory of Chevy Chase. Obviously, Chevy Chase never made nearly as much money as Eddie Murphy did, but they became kind of their own worst enemy and led to their own self-destruction with their egos and everything like that, so...
2: So you're saying that we should we should be on the lookout for uh, Eddie Murphy's community well, like a TV show that did,
1: again Eddie Murphy made way more money during his career than Chevy Chase so he doesn't need a community. <laughs> and that's, as a huge huge community fan, I can always say that Chevy Chase, you know, I love community, but his career carried him to a failing TV show rough come
0: at me
2: that's probably probably
0: the part of the television show that most actively wanted to fail itself
2: yeah that's that's pretty harsh that's like that's a nick nolte yelling at eddie murphy harsh
1: level but yeah this was kind of demoralizing especially for you and i julio having not seen either of these prior to this this was definitely a fun experiment but it's you know the cheap sequel didn't start in 2000. It, it's it's <laughs> clearly been going on for quite some time. Yes.
2: It's a staple of American cinema. <laughs> Yay. Uh, yeah, but, but, okay, 48 I, I think hours.
0: Depending on the kind of person you are, dude, people might be arguing for the cheap sequel as far back as, like, some, some of the 40s, like, road movies with Bob Hope. But I guess if we want to keep it a little more contemporary, dude, people have probably been talking about the, the cheap sequel since... Uh, and it would be the same year, but fucking Die Hard Two would easily be <laughs> the cheap sequel that people that people would name check in in terms of this.
2: Well, I mean, Die Hard Two though is uh, it's far from my favorite of Die Hard's, but it's much better than Another Forty Eight Hours. I, is... I know you wouldn't agree, maybe because you but you like both. You like both a lot. Oh, Die Hard yeah, 2, your no, favorite? Oh yeah, no, I
0: I like them both a lot. Like, yeah, I I couldn't pick a cheap sequel from there. <laughs> this to uh, me... now uh, to be fair. Chaw is not at all a fan of Die, of Hard, Die Hard 2. 2? Yeah. So,
2: I tell Die Hard 2, if you're going to talk about shitty sequels, I mean Die Hard 5, which we will do in this podcast at some point when I finally break Alex oh, down.
0: Oh, dude, I want to I want to be here for that one too.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> this in a lot of ways to me is Hangover and Hangover 2. It's a movie that's the exact same movie remade but with everything um, turned up in a no good way basically and we've talked about at extensive length on the contrary, hangover too but you know what i mean when i say that the first one found what it wanted to be and did it amazingly and then the second one was like okay that must work so let's just do it again but kind of turned up and amplified with brighter colors and shit
2: um i i mean i think that Hangover I, Two is a better sequel than another forty eight hours. Oh, really? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I and I'm not I don't like a huge I'm not a huge fan of the Hangover sequels, but I I am definitely Hangover not two a is fan
1: easily one of the most me- mean spirited films of the last twenty years. You know, here's uh, the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Made a lot of money. Forty eight hours <laughs>
0: 2 <laughs> might be a rehash, but it is it has nothing. On the calculated cynicism of Hangover 2. Agreed. And yet, Hangover
2: 2 is funnier. No. <laughs> yes, it is. There is
1: no moment in Hangover 2 that is
2: funnier. <laughs> the baby's Eddie... flashback.
1: No, as Eddie Murphy's saying, Willie Biggs, black <laughs> motherfucker.
2: <laughs> There's no moment as good as that. Uh, no, I, I I disagree. But but that... you can see what I'm trying to say. I see what you're trying to say. And, and, and I think that it's just that... And I even agree to a point with Hangover 2 that... It's just the soul is missing, and uh and part of it is just like the betrayal, and it's it's a lot more obvious in the forty eight hours franchise let's call it the betrayal of of what happened in the first one. There is some clear bonding there's an actual character, Arc on the Nick Nolte uh role, you know he does learn he's like he starts a complete asshole that completely disregards uh Eddie Murphy as a human being. So to speak, and then by the end he's thanking him and apologizing and all that is gone in the sequel for no reason.
0: Oh, I'm not it's not entirely one hundred percent gone. There is an awareness that Cates is an asshole. It doesn't mean he's changed because it's not always that easy. But Cates is fairly self aware of the kind of destructive personality. I mean, yes. yeah, there
2: is, like... If you're talking about the real world, you can say that, yeah, it's a lot harder for people to change. The, you know, just one single experience is not going to change someone for good. But it's not like another 48 hours is concerned with the fact that, that Nick Nolte's character is back to being a dick. You know, oh, it, that's not that's not what it's about. It's, uh, yeah, it's So not, it feels it's like a betrayal. Cons-
0: it's not concerned with that. But... He knows he knows that all of the things that have cost him the past relationships he knows that he hasn't learned much from them
2: but right but but on the face of the ending at the journey of 48 hours it does feel like a betrayal uh, of the characters and, and, and kind of a slap in the face for the audience because you really want an explanation to why these two people who seem to have connected throughout the first movie, are at odds in the second movie. Especially after eight years. <laughs> yeah, that that was something I was wondering. How much time has passed when the sequel happens? I,
0: You know, I, I'd be willing to bet that it was... like the, the... Actually, you know, I, I don't know if, it, if r- real time would be a fair assessment. Well, because if it's eighty well, eight, eight years...
2: <laughs> no, because, I mean, clearly it should be six months. Less than six months, right? Because... Uh, unless Murphy did something that I don't remember if they mentioned in the sequel that he did something to extend. They his... do
1: something where Hades fucks him over and he has to stay in prison for a longer amount of time.
2: Oh, okay. Well, then that explains that. That's that's even worse. Then why would he do that after they bonded in the first yeah. one?
1: There's nothing, you know. The worst time I've had watching both of these movies is the opening scene of another 48 Hours. with the bikers out in the desert, like the pull into that bar? Yeah.
0: Oh. Okay. Well. This, this is actually a, pr- a pretty good segue <laughs> into uh, into my uh, my theories about the so. Okay, You know how I was talking about how there is like all, all of these signals that Walter Hill is trying to scratch this spaghetti western itch that he has. Starts with the bikers in the bar in the desert executing people. They're essentially like these three hitmen that come into town and they're searching for Kate's and here, you know, the first film opens up with a lot more signs and signifiers of the Western than I expected. You have, like, the wide-open field with horses, and then the next shot is literally, like, a train pulling up to a railroad crossing. And it's, you know, it's, it's not something that I had ever noticed before, but, uh, you know, it sort of brings the whole idea of him wanting spaghetti Western. Full
2: circle. well there's like there's cowboy hats like all over the movie. <laughs>
0: oh yeah, yeah. Everybody in the all all the guards in the prison
2: chain gang have them. Um,
1: yeah, just that scene in the fucking bar with Eddie Murphy taking charge is fucking awesome.
2: That that is pretty awesome. Uh, I I liked it a lot. There was uh, even though, uh, I mean, I'm not even gonna say that I have reservations about what happens because this is a movie. But there is that thing of, like, they're still – they're not doing anything. (laughs) They're being racist, but they're being racist within the law. And he (laughs) comes in and he just starts shit. But it's still very satisfying to see.
1: Well, and, you know, a lesser actor would have not made that scene. But, like, Eddie's – it's frustrating. Yeah,
0: it goes back to the whole he's the coolest person on the planet. Right. And, you know, part of it is the way that he sashays into a bar full of fucking – Cracker ass racist <laughs> dudes and just says, fuck you and you and you and you and you. Yeah. It and is. it's awesome. It is. Uh, yeah.
1: His, you know, I can't stress enough his legacy is one of frustration. I mean, to have, like we were saying earlier, Curtis, that he had the world in the palm of his hand in the 80s and he just kind of, he could have done anything with it, but instead he just kind of, you know, Sandler says, I wanted to make movies for my kids and, you know, has
2: Murphy ever said that? I think so. I think that's why he did. Uh, was it The Haunted House? Haunted Mansion. I think that's, mansion.
0: that is a compulsion that everybody has. I think even Ice-T you know, did that. But I would argue that by the time he finally came to that <laughs> –
2: Ice-T said I, I wanted not, not something – Not Ice-T,
0: Ice Cube. But by the time he finally came to that realization
1: <laughs> – 5.
0: But by the time S-B-U he finally came to that Phoenix. realization, I would argue that Ice Cube's child – was probably eighteen, yeah. old enough to get into R-rated movies himself. So this this became about self uh, self sustaining. Yeah,
1: it's just one of those things, though. It's like you look at a guy like uh, fucking Michael Fassbender. You think he's gonna be doing any shit like Nutty Professor anytime soon,
2: <laughs> dude? You never know. I mean, I don't know what happens. I hope actually now that I think about it. <laughs> I ten, mean, ten years. Hey, from now. listen, you when you can you imagine like growing up and like seeing Taxi Driver when he first comes out, and you're like, there is no way that this Robert De Niro guy is ever gonna be doing like shit like Bad Grandpa, and then he does. That's true.
0: <laughs> no, um, no, 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 bad, bad Grandpa's not even the best example. We're, we're talking like Meet the Fockers, Meet the Parents.
2: I think. Mean, Okay, I I kind of like I haven't Little watched Fox? Bad Grandpa, but you know I watch Meet the Fockers. Not no, Meet Meet the Parents is good. Meet the Parents is good. No, no Meet the Parents is trash.
0: No, meet, meet the Fockers or Meet the Fockers is better.
1: You're both wrong. No, the first one, the first one is
2: good. The second one, not so much. And the third one is probably terrible. I haven't seen you it. You guys are idiots, dude. But... There's that scene where Ben Stiller's talking about like milking the. I- I've cat. seen it. Yeah, it's funny. No, I, um, I guess that's a future episode for us. Um. So, but
1: basically, all that to be said. Okay, Taxi Driver, you know, even Fassbender, which now I'm just hoping that like he does something <laughs> ten years from now or buddy comedy. But no one in the history, dude,
0: he's done like no one in the history three buddy comedies. Of- it's uh, X Men First Class, <laughs>
1: <laughs> and then Shame with him and his little buddy, <laughs> and, and,
0: and, and then and then X Men Days of Future Past. But
1: you know. All that to be said, none of these people that we've mentioned ever quite had the pop culture buzz of Eddie Murphy. That's what makes him an enigma, is because, you know, Taxi Driver was just something. And especially now, that's a movie that's like hailed these years later as this big, important thing. Eddie Murphy was like the most famous person in the world for a brief period of time. He could have been fucking James Dean or that lasted or something like that. That's what makes him endlessly fascinating is that he didn't do it. Adam Sandler, we talked about it. Adam Sandler was never going to be the most important person in the world. the Biggest celebrity. in the
0: world. Oh, well, here's the, here's the thing about Eddie Murphy. I think 48 hours was better than most of the later comedies to follow. It was that arguably made him more famous,
1: made him more money for sure. But yeah, 48 hours is amongst his best work.
2: Uh, I mean, it's good, but I I don't think I think that when you watch something like Coming to America or uh um Norbit. No, not Norbit <laughs> <laughs> Well no, I mean on
0: on Coming to America, I'm just gonna straight up disagree.
2: Because you don't like it or because you don't think it's as good?
0: I, I don't think it's as good. I don't either. I think forty eight hours is better.
2: No, come on man. I Dude, the best the
0: best joke in coming to America is A, I love I love Big Dallas. I like to call McDonald's McDowells. It's amazing. But the best jokes outside of that are jokes about stains the Jerry Curls leave on Cushions. Like
2: no, I, I think, think that there's more to it, especially as a as an Eddie Murphy showcase. I think Coming to America is is better because he's you know, he's playing all those different characters and there's it's just about him. I mean you have Arsenio Hall, but really the movie is about him. Whereas here he's like he's sharing Billing with Nick Nolte, so you get a lot of Nick Nolte stuff. And it's also, I think, Coming to America is a little bit more timeless. I, I've seen it a few times. It's been a while, but I've seen it at least three or four. And uh, this one is good, but it's also, when you come down to it, it is just kind of like a cop movie from the 80s. At the time, that was it was a really good one. But now when you watch it, you're just like, you have to think of the context to really appreciate how great it is.
1: But you don't have to think of the context to of how great he is. And again. Right. And to go back, uh James Dean was a poor comparison because he really wasn't that famous when he was around. So let's say he could have been Charlie Chaplin. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Come on.
1: Okay, now who in their time was recognized as the most famous person in the world type thing?
2: I mean, you could uh, I mean, could let's
1: go Lady there. Gaga. No, I mean, no, you Eddie, could you could Eddie say Murphy's Chaplin.
0: definitely like you can name check him as one of the most famous people of his time. I'm just trying to th- like I, that that's I'm not to give wrong the apt
1: comparison of what he could have been if he wanted to be. And don't get me wrong, I got love for nutty professor, man. The first one, that movie's funny as shit.
2: I I've, I've seen nutty professor I don't know 5 times at least in theaters. That was <laughs> my life. I saw it
1: twice in theaters when I was a little kid. It was it was hilarious. But, you know, it's just one of those things that will go down in American pop culture and I guess global because of his celebrity that just interesting interesting that he just kind of uh, his ego clearly got the best of him because he still years later could have chosen things to do and he did with uh, fucking dream uh, girls. dream girls yeah. yeah and they I remember I can't remember who the fuck did it but the one person from the academy of the year who was awesome, nominated for the Oscars like yeah well he's not gonna win it because he did fucking Norbit the same year and
2: it's like I wonder how much truth there is to that though because it sounds almost like that is, that makes too much sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, that's, there's no way that they plan it that well to, you know, do they really, do people would really resent him that much not to vote for him when it's, uh. I just think he
1: didn't give a shit in campaign.
2: I mean, that's, that's Unlike more like Melissa
1: Leo, who fucking invested her entire life savings in campaigning to win an Oscar.
0: Uh, Tom you? Hooper.
1: <laughs> <Dude>. <laughs> um, so 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Forty eight hours. Can't really argue with it. You know, I kinda would like to delve more into the argument you made about context, but I still think it works fine.
2: It I think it works fine if I'm watching it, you know. Obviously it, it, some
1: of the verbiage that's used is kind of shocking by today's standards, but it's
2: Okay, well
0: let's uh if I may, you know, I don't wanna I don't wanna derail the conversation. Well let's talk about uh race as the great equalizer in this movie. Because race is the default thing that people fall back on when they want to admit that they, when they're trying to act as if they don't need people. Because James Remar is like, squaw this, squaw that. But, clearly, Billy Bear is his best fucking friend. And someone that he trusts unequivocally. And, uh, yeah, I just, I think it, I think it's a wall that people put up. And I think, I I think it merits a little bit of a conversation.
2: Yeah, I mean, I liked, uh, uh, there is, this one definitely handles race relations in a way that the second one doesn't. I I remember pointing it out at the last episode about how you could have just recast Eddie Murphy with a white guy and it, it would barely make a dent in the dynamics that they have in the movie. It was like in this one, there is a very clear racial tension between a white guy and a black guy and that is good that's that that's awesome i I really like that and you know that ties in with just the language and just the attitude that they have which is fine i mean it's clearly rated r (laughs) so just embrace it and go it feels it almost feels like way more honest than uh you know i brought up tarantino earlier you know it feels just more it hits you harder than than when tarantino has like Samuel Jackson, whoever just go like crazy with 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 the racial slurs here it's like, oh well, it feels like these people are actually racist yeah. instead of like movie racist. not true right right yeah. uh so so no, that's good you know when I'm talking about like that it feels like an eighties cop movie, it's just like the other stuff, you know, just like the action sequence they're well shot, but they're not like like an action sequence that you see now, yeah. you know, and that that is. A big part of the movie and sadly that's the thing that Wait, kinda gets so left um, behind.
0: I, I guess this is this is as good a time as any to say that you don't you don't find that opening set piece in the hotel when Nick Nolte goes with Jonathan Banks and the other cop. You don't you don't think that's a really well staged and executed set piece.
2: It's it's an okay set piece that I think would be executed much more vibrantly now. You know, but that doesn't mean I'm not faulting the filmmakers. I'm faulting Walter Hill for shooting it the way he shot it back then. It's it it works fine, but but now, you know, I'm I'm watching it. I'm like, okay, this works, but it's not doing anything new for me. In the '80s, I'm sure it was like, wow, that was really fucking awesome. You know, there was like, a, even though my 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 complaint remains that any cop that gives up his gun in that situation has no business being a cop because I don't understand what his game plan was. You know, yeah, but uh, I mean I liked this
0: the part of the scene of the sequence where uh where James Remar comes comes out the other room uh to start shooting at the beginning of that set piece.
2: I'll give you the the one action scene that made me go, huh, was when they're chasing the, the bus. Mm-hmm. Because that felt like I wasn't sure how it worked. You know, it, it today I would be like, oh, they just green screened the shit out of that scene but here i'm like were they actually maybe chasing the the the, <laughs> the, the bus cuz it looks it looks cool it looks like it's happening and yeah. it it looks like it's dangerous so that that was good but you know there's a lot of just like regular cop movie tropes that don't quite work for me the way that maybe work for somebody who's really into cop movies or for somebody you know back in the day all the stuff where they just like kind of Talking shit to the receptionist and just kinda like bullying her into letting them in. That that was just like that doesn't mean sweetheart. Yeah, that's like uh... uh yeah, no. Okay, the thing I was gonna say was I
0: also liked how, you know, you get you get sort of and you know, this is us jumping into the future just a little bit, but you get sort of this definitive tie to the next great cop movie of the eighties, which is Beverly Hills Cop, where Eddie Murphy and his friend uh, this guy named Michael Tandino who's a small time uh, hood who comes to Eddie Murphy to tell him something and he gets executed right there in front of uh, in front of Eddie Murphy and the villain's gun misfires or something and Eddie Murphy himself does not get executed and so it's just you know it's just one of those things that provides like a commonality and a link between the two um, because the hero somehow inexplicably survives and it's just uh you know it it opens up with the kind of set piece that that drives the movie forward and gives it a an urgency that it might not otherwise have and you know I know it's not accidental because they're both they're both written, but it is it is kind of interesting to see that they have those two elements in common about themselves and Walter Hill was
1: very bitter about similarities between the two, Beverly Hills Cop.
2: Really? Yeah, you yeah. should elaborate on that more.
1: Well, he was very bitter about the similarities <laughs>
2: between the two. He, he, thought the t- he told Foley. you that on your last Skype session?
1: Nah, just when I was doing some research on the movie, he thought the Axel Foley character in Beverly Hills Cop was almost a direct ripoff of, uh, of uh, Reggie from this one. But um, kind of wrapping up here, 92%. I can rock with that. I can roll with that.
2: Yeah, it seems right. Again, in my case, I have to put it in context, and I have to think of it and like, oh yeah, but this is in the '80s. I mean, if it came out this, you know, today, this Christmas, be, this Christmas, it'd be like that was good but not great. Back in the '80s, it'd be like, oh yeah, this is great. Yeah. So, but that's. I was talking to uh, uh, Brandon and in the in, during the break, and I was like, "What would you rate it?" You know, and I'm like, "I would give uh, 48 hours like 3.5 out of 5 and I would give uh another 48 hours like 1.5 mm-hmm. and that might be too generous actually no, uh, yeah another 48 hours. after watching this one it makes me being angry absolute
1: trash
2: <laughs> yeah i mean he disagrees obviously he how oh, much uh, what was your your ranking
0: uh for for the second one it's it's a strong two and a half or a week three out and of then, four and then this one Ooh. this one is straight up four
2: uh what I was thinking while we were watching this movie was that I would love it if Walter Hill would make one last film in the franchise called The Last Forty Eight Hours. And it's like either Nolte or Murphy are diagnosed with some terminal illness and they have like two days left. <laughs> but that, they go that watch actually on one sounds last place.
0: Like the Kevin Costner movie where they forgot that he was sick the last three days. <laughs> I haven't seen that. Yeah, they're supposed to give him like an antidote, but with, I think they forget that he's sick.
1: What was the one with Alan Arkin and Christopher Walken? Oh, uh the good guys. The
0: the yeah, no, no, no. I I think that's what it's called. Yeah. I didn't. I didn't see the whole, the entirety of that one. But
2: yes, the last forty-eight hours is a, is a masterpiece <laughs> waiting to be it, made. It's either that, or it's set in a post-apocalyptic world where, like, we're just like two days away from a comet like hitting the Earth or something, <laughs> and it's like Nolte and Murphy come together to like say their goodbyes. It ends like
1: Greece, where they're driving the Cadillac <laughs> up into <laughs> the asteroid.
2: Yes, exactly. All
1: right, that was our trek down the Walter Hill Path with 48 Hours. Another 48 Hours, Curtis. Thank you for joining us for this trek.
2: Oh,
0: you're welcome. I hope I hope I justified it in the end. <laughs> um,
1: regular plugs here. We have the band that provides our music, The Festive Years. Their album, mm-hmm. Don't Let Me Use You, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, anywhere you can find music.
2: Yes, you can just also just contact Chris directly, ask mm-hmm. him to sing to you on the phone. There you go. I had a, I had like a tiny plug. Our friends from Draft Zero, which we've plugged before, yeah, they had. Dude, you're gonna love this story. Uh, YouTube, Brandon, if you don't know it already. Uh, oh yeah,
0: what's what's old Chaz up to these days? <laughs>
2: uh, he's uh, he's out pissing Quentin Tarantino off. Oh they, God, what did he do? They they had an episode where they like talked about Tarantino and like his scripts and how uh, they. He sometimes writes uh, what you call unfilmables in his scripts, you know, which is stuff that it's like okay when you read it, it makes sense, but this, there's no way that you can put that on camera, yeah. right? And uh, it was like part of a bigger point they were making. This, well, this uh, to be
0: fair, Tarantino does interject a lot of prose and straight up book writing that almost no one else can get away with. So I understand 100% where they're coming from.
2: Right. And, and but that's pretty much what Tarantino said when he listened to their podcast <laughs> and then issued like a retort on like a radio interview or something. That's incredible. Yeah, I guess somebody told him it's like somebody told him, "Hey, these guys like were not talking shit about it, but but you know, kind of like they had some issues with your writing." And then he went and he listened to the episode and then he didn't contact them, but he would just he mentioned them in an interview, and then somebody listened to that and and told them it's like, hey, Quentin Tarantino listens to your podcast. That's <laughs> that's called subtweeting life. Yeah, it was, it's crazy, and you know. So then Tarantino goes and says, kind of like what you said, which is like, listen, I do that, and some that's just how I write, and you know, it, So
1: Quentin Tarantino listens to something that we've been plugged on.
2: Yes, yeah, yeah. But but that I was thinking about it and I was like, I had like several things running through my head. One was like, that is awesome. Two is like, you know, great for Chaz. Three is like, there's no way we're ever doing a Tarantino movie now because if we do a Quentin Tarantino episode and Tarantino does not listen to it, mm-hmm. I'm going to feel just like inferior. <laughs> so I'd rather not have to deal with that. Uh, but that's that's just crazy. I I, I love it. I, I love that that kind of shit can happen. <laughs> Quentin Tarantino is... He obviously, you just can't peg him, you know. You can't just like figure him out. He's like, he'll say that Green Lantern, which is like our next episode, be- yeah, which <laughs> is- one of his 10 best movies of that exactly. Year. You know, and, and then he'll listen to like a podcast from uh Australia that where they like name drop him, and it, it's just it's crazy. But but that is to say, you should be like Quentin Tarantino and listen to rap Zero because it's a lot of fun, exactly. Uh, do you have anything to plug, Brandon Curtis? Um. Uh, our long-time uh, contrarians
0: podcast uh Walter Shaw, at some point in the in the next year, he will be writing a book about Walter Hill, very which will include uh, extensive uh, commentary on both of the Forty Eight Hours films. So uh, we'll we'll keep you apprised of the publication dates.
2: Oh yeah, we'll put up a link to it as soon as uh, as soon as it's out.
0: As soon as it's on Amazon but uh, <laughs> in, in the interim you can follow uh, walter chaw on twitter at Mangiotto. m-a-n-g-i-o-t-t-o
2: i'll put up a link to that too
1: curtis is his agent his PR, <laughs> his publicist
2: no nah, man we uh, i'd also like to announce that i am uh, <laughs> actually if, if
0: you guys want a little background we uh, we met doing like a consumer product review site where we review movies and and things like that and we've been friends for like 14 years so
2: uh you know they're better whenever, friends than nick nolte and eddie murphy
0: <laughs> yeah definitely
1: in the future if you ask uh do you want some background you should give someone a chance to answer
0: <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah okay well i'm giving you some background um but yeah, he's he's a good guy. Runs the Alamo Draft House in Denver. Um, you should uh, attend his attend his theater if you can. Otherwise, you should uh, read his writing because you know, for you, he could be the next Siebert, the same way he was for me. Excellent. So. Well, I think that's about it. Um, yeah, our next episode,
1: our next official episode is fucking Green Lantern.
2: So. We're going back to the superhero uh, <laughs> world.
1: That's going to be something. Dude, the,
2: it's it's actually rather timely given that Deadpool seems to be uh, Ryan Reynolds.
1: Trumping all the critics.
2: Yeah, he's is his, his redemption story after Green Lantern. By the time that comes out,
0: Deadpool might be the highest grossing domestic R-rated release ever. It might even pull that off by this week.
2: Exciting times! I think we're we're gonna point out how people just missed the point missed of Green Lantern. Yeah, yes. yeah, it's like those all of those Green Lantern haters—they just didn't get it.
1: It was a sign of things to come. Yep. Uh, but yeah, that was 48 hours and another 48 hours. That was our, our Walter Hill marathon, so to speak. But uh, it was a lot of fun. I do thank y'all for joining us on the Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. That of
2: 1999. Back when you blew my mind And told me secrets in the dark I'm just fine
0: Alicia Vikander, you know she's dynamite. Yeah, like watching her be awesome in a Tom Hooper movie is like watching two miracles happen in a Tom Hooper movie at once. <laughs> it's, it's like it's like a it's good and B someone's good in it.
2: King's Speech is a fine movie. It didn't need better it, than social King's Network. Speech. Of course is it wasn't, not, but that it's doesn't make it a bad movie.
0: A fine movie is the wrong way to describe it. It is, fine
1: movie is the A-team. It
0: is adequate. We'll see. You, you would probably be looking for the words adequate. Because you know what? Nobody nobody now, now that we're five years out from King's Speech, nobody fucking remembers that movie. Not even my mom. She stutters, and that's like her Rocky. And she doesn't remember that movie. <laughs>